Welcome to the Tucson Bitcoin Podcast. Today, my guest is Bill Bergman, who is joining me for a second time. Uh, I had him on a while ago, uh, and we had a great conversation about monetary theory and, and government spending and borrowing, and, and this is kind of a continuation of the conversation. So if you didn't have the chance to listen to the first one, go back and check it out. And also check out the conversation I had with Sheila Weinberg. She is the founder of the organization that Bill works for uh, called Truth and Accounting, and they are incredible. They go and audit uh, the government financial statements and make them readable and show you how scary the situation is. There's very few states that are uh, have a surplus, um, Wyoming being one of them. Uh, where our senator, Bitcoin senator Kelly Lummis is from, where she used to manage the budget. Um, so that's a good positive. We have somebody that knows what they're doing in Congress for once. Uh, but yeah, it was a fun conversation. Bill is the head of research over at Truth and Accounting. He's also a professor at Loyola University, and he used to work for the Chicago Fed. So he knows his stuff, and it was really fun just bouncing back and forth. Uh, talking about economics and monetary theory and, uh, you know, all, all the fun, scary stuff that is so important for normal people to understand because these are the issues that, that really impact our lives. The way that government recklessly spends our money or, or deficit spends, that stuff impacts us in the long run. It creates inflation. It, it means that they can't uh, honor their obligations and promises you know if you're expecting a pension in arizona uh go and look at their pension database on uh truth and accounting and you'll see that it's it's not guaranteed that you'll get it it, it looks just as bad as social security uh, it's a giant ponzi scheme and it's falling apart and uh that's why bitcoin is so important right now um but yeah, I hope you enjoy this conversation. I really did. It was a lot of fun. Always enjoy talking to Bill. And yeah. Alrighty, we're recording. Good to have you on, Bill. Great, Alex. Nice to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Sure. You're uh, my first repeat guest. So congratulations. Well, thank um, you. I can't I can't wait. This will be here here we go. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I think the work that Truth and Accounting is doing is incredibly important um because people are so unaware of uh how broke our government is and and really need to see it in reality they they see the official numbers which look pretty terrible a lot of times um but they don't know the accounting wizardry that goes behind the scenes so yeah well that's that's our, our goal in truth and accounting is to help citizens understand the true state of affairs. Having said that, it's hard to know what the true state of affairs is in the world of finance and government finance in particular for a few reasons. But we've got to try as citizens and taxpayers, we all have a duty to our own wallets to to, to watch after them. And that's what we're trying to help people do with truth and accounting. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of going off of uh, it's hard to tell. Well, the official CPI was, I, I think, somewhere around 1.4% for uh 2020 and um the fed is discontinuing the m2 um or at least they're they're changing the way that they report it um so it's it they they like to manipulate the numbers um to hide it it, it was interesting that you uh you referred to the quote official cpi does that reflect any skepticism in your in your eyes of the 
accounting for inflation in the United States? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it when when I talk to normal people about inflation, I, I like to ask them um, how expensive, how much more expensive things have gotten over the years, and like if it's noticeable. And like a they they generally say they're targeting around two percent or having trouble meeting that two percent, but that doesn't reflect increases in just about everything that matters, like childcare. Um, housing, uh, you know, education, all, all, all of these things that actually, you know, people are, are paying for, um, it, that should be included in the CPI that are on like parabolic upswings rather than a steady increase of, of 2% yearly. And so, um, what, what it comes down to, there's a guy named Ed Butowski. I like him a lot. He unfortunately wasn't able to get, a 2020 um, uh, report done, but he also uh, does his own inflation calculator um, called the Chapwood Index. And so he has people all over the country that um, goes and reports on the uh, average cost of like some of the most commonly used uh, or bought items. And so, um, and that, but at, at AIER, uh, American Institute for Economic Research, kind of like that. They have a, an everyday price index mm -hmm. as another way to try to measure. And once, once you look under the hood and how, the, how all of these things are put together, you realize that it's not an easy task. There's a lot of uncertainty about what we know and don't know about how to measure inflation. Um, some of those issues underneath, including measuring quality improvement or lack thereof, and, Anyway, when you look under the hood, it's it's not an easy thing to understand. Having said that, I, I share your concern that it's possible that our um, real inflation may not be what our, what what we're being told. Yeah, I, I think one of the tricky things about inflation too is it's not always reflected in the prices of things. So, like you know, automobiles, for example, they're increasing in cost, um, but they're not really getting better, other than like some few. Um, superficial differences like the gas mileage and performance stays the same over time, but the um, quality doesn't improve. And, and um, from, a, from a longer term perspective, I got to disagree a little bit, but let's, this is going to open the door to thinking about this in a way that I think supports your position. The, um, in 1960, what do you think the median price of a four door sedan was about roughly? Just take a, take a guess. You don't have to get it. Right? Four four thousand dollars. About about eighteen hundred bucks. I actually oh. back when I back when I worked at the, the Federal Reserve, they had this wonderful automotive industry publication called Ward's Automotive Reports. And I took back, I looked back at the 1960 yearbook and they had a ranking of all the four-door sedans. And the median price at that time was eighteen hundred bucks. Today it's north of twenty-five thousand. That increase from eighteen hundred or whatever it is today, last I looked anyway. Is about three times as big as the increase in the CPI for new cars. Hmm. Now we have better cars today, and but how do you measure? And that's when you get into the theoretical and almost philosophical issues in 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 the CPI, and that's the difficulties with quantifying quality. How do you, when quality is in the view of the beholder, how do you actually quantify the improvement? in the quality of goods and services. And that's when you get into a world of ambiguity and po possible scope for um, manipulation. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, 
I, um, the thing that amazes me about an inflationary economy is like technology is inherently deflationary. Like it should be getting more efficient over time. Because like, if you look at the 1960s and the way that cars were made, um, it was far less efficient. They, they didn't have robots making a lot of the pieces and they didn't have, um, cheaper outsourcing supply chains weren't as, uh, efficient. And, um, you know, if we had, a uh, a money that was stable, I would imagine that the car prices would either remain stable or actually decrease in cost over time. So. Well, that, that, that raises immediately an, a very interesting question the, from the point of view of what Congress has told the Federal Reserve to pursue in conducting monetary policy. The current mandate for the, the Fed to pursue, um, quote unquote, stable prices, maximum employment, and moderate long-term interest rates, that arrived in 1977 in the Federal Reserve Reform Act of 1977. Prior to that, the Federal Reserve and the rest of the federal government operated theoretically under the mandate from the Employment Act of 1946 that the government pursue maximum purchasing power or promote purchasing power, which isn't necessarily the same thing as stable prices. And what you're mentioning with respect to cars, I think, is a fascinating issue. What, what, in a world where technology is helping us and we're getting more productive, is it possible that a slowly declining price level is, is what should be the case? Even so, pursuing stable prices, maybe that's not just the, the right goal. You should, you should pursue maximum purchasing power. So you can debate this stuff, but... Yeah. Yeah, I think like from a philosophical standpoint, um, where I stand is that inflation disproportionately benefits asset owners, which, you know, is growing increasingly more centralized um, and it benefits them at the expense of average uh, people that do not have uh, the same access to owning capital um, in the that's same way that's an interesting perspective and i think it's not you're not getting as lonely as you used to be i think more people are, are are thinking along these lines and there's more sensitivity about the distributional impacts of monetary policy these days even at the federal reserve yeah i mean it it um i think it was ludwig von mises who might have been friedrich hayek i i can't remember but they presented this idea that you know, it's one thing if you um, are impacted by the market, you know, if you get laid off because of market conditions. And it's another thing if you're disproportionately impacted by a decision of a central planner um, and just the uh, unfairness of that, of like you can point the finger at this person instead of just saying, well, life happens. Um, well, let's, let's step back and think about that congressional mandate for the Federal Reserve. We have Congress and its infinite wisdom has directed effectively 12 people voting on the FOMC to try to manage the total amount of money and credit of more than 300 million other people. We have 12 people attempting to do this. A, let's assume that, you know, they're honest. Can they even do this? And, and with a view to pursuing the goals that Congress gave them, stable prices, maximum employment and moderate, or, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it, it, are we asking them to do too much? And I think in 2008, 2009, we learned our, our lesson that we should have learned that maybe um, these folks don't have as much farsighted predictive 
and or analytical capacity to do something that's that complicated. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much Hayek's entire thesis and the road to serfdom. Um, it's, uh, it's kind of ludicrous to imagine that 12 people can uh, try and um, be the overlords over millions of people interacting um, uh, in a decentralized manner, for sure. It's, uh... in, in, in their defense, you might you might argue that, you know, granted, if we didn't have the Fed, we would have something that might be even worse. Maybe it's 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 a hard thing. It's a hard task we've asked the Federal Reserve to pursue, but um, without it, would we be worse off? Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I mean, free mon free market uh, money, I think, is a really interesting concept, and you know, we do have precedents for it. And so when uh, gold was the standard um gold isn't the greatest money in the world because it's not very uh portable or divisible and that's why we moved on to fiat money but you know when you have uh um free market money i i think it allows for uh better circumstances um and and fairness in the markets for sure um you know i think like the the boom bust cycles are actually exasperated a lot by the federal reserve. Um, like we're seeing right now, because we're just standing on a house of cards waiting for it to eventually like nobody. I, I think very few people think that the system we're in right now is sustainable. And I think we've enjoyed a lot of, uh, um, stability and progress over the past that, that, that we can't take for granted. Mm. Among other people questioning that sustainability, you might be surprised to learn that the federal government itself and the financial report of the U.S. government has a discussion of the sustainability of the federal government's finances in its annual financial report. And here's just by way of background, in, in a world, the, the financial report of the U.S. government is one of the most complicated things on the face of the earth <laughs> when you start trying to figure it out. But you can do simple things sometimes when faced with challenging analytical challenges like that. Um, and it, by way of background, let's let's go back to the, the boom before the bust in 2008, 2009. AIG had a very complicated set of financial statements. But if you had looked, and I did um, before the boom busted, uh, if you I just counted the number of times the phrase credit default swap appeared in their in their 10K every year in the years up to 2008, 2009. In 2003, it was in there once. 2004, it was in there twice. 2005 was in there uh, three times and three times again. But then in 2007, the, the 2007 10K for AIG, when it came out in early 08, before the meltdown, it was in there more than 100 times. All of a sudden, poof. The lawyers were scared. Well, I, this is an example of the kind of thing, a simple thing you can do, and I do it with the financial report of the U.S. government. Rhetoric analysis can be a um, maybe too easy to do, but it's actually, if you do a word count on the word unsustainable in the financial report of the U.S. government, you see a steady march upward from 1 to 16 over the last 10 years. There's increasing discussion reflecting increasing concern about the sustainability of our federal government's finances. And here we are in current um, weeks <laughs> about to see a, um, a test case of that sustainability and how much we can uh, 
actually blow through the ceiling that we've already tried to blow through in, in the last decade. So, so do you think that we're in the danger zone in the next few weeks then? I don't see anything imminent, but that's not, I'm not, I'm not a predictor. I'm not a fork. I, I don't, we have enough trouble figuring out what happened last month in, in, in the, in the economy or in financial markets. I, I try to be careful. And I, I teach my students to the importance of humility. Having said that, it's an important thing to watch. Um, and we, one of, one of the things that we do learn from history is to be respectful of the fact that the kind of, the kind of moment that you're, you're suggesting might be at, at hand. It, it isn't there until it is. And, and crowd psychology can turn very quickly. And if, yeah. if, the, if, the, if the attitude towards US treasuries changes and changes quickly, well, that can happen in, in financial markets. We learned it in 2008, 2009, and it's something to monitor and watch and be careful of. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, it's one of the things that I like about truth and accounting. So you guys go um, to great lengths to go and uh, audit the financial reports and um, bring together kind of a comprehensive report uh, that gets through the accounting wizardry um, that uh, our government likes to do. Um, Those annual reports are very dense and very complicated. And it's hard for the average Joe and Jane to actually have a chance of even opening them. That's why they don't. It's almost they're rationally choosing not to read them for a reason. Mm -hmm. It's not that they're being irresponsible. It's just that it's it's so hard. And that's what we, that's what we're trying to do is to dig through all those things, put it into a coherent and reliable format that's relatively simple and understandable. That, that's our goal with the, the financial state of the cities financial state of the states and the financial state of the union, which we're going to be, you know, we should have in the next few weeks, if not maybe a month or so, the annual financial report of the U.S. government for the last fiscal year. And we'll be digging into that as soon as, as soon as it comes out. Yeah, I think that one will be pretty uh, wild looking at uh, what's happened over the past year. Um, so yeah, let's let's talk about what's going on in Chicago right now. Last time I um I had Sheila on and I had you on, it looked pretty grim. Um, where where does the city stand at right now? Well, it's still pretty grim. Uh, again, we have to respect the fact that we don't have a financial report for 2020 yet. The um, city of Chicago, by law, is directed to produce an annual financial report within six months of the end of its fiscal year. But if recent years are any indication, the city of Chicago will go ahead and issue it after six months are over and then put a, um, a date on a letter of transmittal that's June 30th to make it look like they it came out with, with six months. So the, the first thing I gotta say is, you know, we don't, we're flying all blind in a sense. We only have information for the fiscal year 2019 for the city of Chicago, we're still waiting that's, that's a lesson from the city of Chicago for everyone that the timeliness of financial reporting, especially the audited financial reports that come at the end of the fiscal year, they're, they're very important documents. But unfortunately, and one of the reasons why the city of Chicago is in desperate financial conditions these days is that we've had a long-term focus on the budgets. And the budgets are our prospective forward-looking documents that are malleable in terms of their accounting. 
and in fact deceptive. The city of Chicago, besides claiming to produce its annual financial report every six months within six months of the fiscal year, they also say that they produce a balanced budget every year according to state law. And that may be true, strictly speaking, based on what the law says, but it's they, they, they can do things like borrowing money to plug in the gap and to not fund pensions and retiree health care programs. They're, they're basically based on a cash basis type budgeting and accounting system that allows for the accumulation of debt, even as they tell the citizens and taxpayers that they balance the budget. And that's, that's, a, that's a, a fundamental issue, not just for the city of Chicago, we're among the most egregious in the nation on this score, but, the, um, but it's, a, it's a problem everywhere, which, which flows from a current project that we're on at Truth in Accounting. The uh, Governmental Accounting Standards Board in recent years has been moving towards and recently issued these two formal exposure drafts for governmental funds statements. These aren't the overall government statements. Uh, those are actually relatively reliable in the, in the comprehensive annual financial reports. But the, government, the underlying governmental fund statements are what the governments use for budgets. And it's those, for instance, the city of Chicago has had a positive general funds balance for the last decade, even as it's dug itself into a massive hole. You should see the interest expense numbers alone for the city of Chicago in the last 15 years. They've gone from something like $400 million a year, which is already a lot to, in its latest year, the, the, in the footnotes, there's a disclosure that the city of Chicago is incurring before it, it takes a single kid to school or puts a, a, a policeman on the, on the corner. The city of Chicago, because of all this cumulative borrowing, is incurring $1.4 billion a year in interest expense alone from the longstanding practice of borrowing money to, to make itself whole. And that's what's, it, 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 that's not sustainable. <laughs> and we're gonna, we're gonna see um, a, a very interesting lesson in political economy in the next few months as the federal government is being asked to help <laughs> uh, carry the load for the city of Chicago and other similarly situated challenge jurisdictions. Yeah, yeah, it, it, uh, it, one of the things that just blew my mind, I wasn't, I didn't know, um, before I had you and Sheila on, I didn't know that a lot of the, the most of the states and, and cities had budget balance or balanced budget requirements. And, uh, and then it blew my mind that borrowed money was considered, uh, revenue to them. It, you know, it's interesting when we raise this point, the, the defenders of the system, oh, that's not revenue, they say, and technically it's not revenue, but it is treated as such in the budgeting process. It, it's a resource, it's, in, it's an inflow, and it's, it's almost as if you, you, you view, and they put it in the, in the inflow section of the, of the report with longer term consequences. And that's what's, you know, pushed off, kick the can down the road and and led us to the, the situation where we are today. Yeah, I, I was in Chicago in December and the city was dead. Um, it was uh, pretty, well, it was nice because I got to actually walk around without anybody there and go see things. Um, <laughs> but um, it was also, you know, pretty sad um, to see that, I mean, just all the different stores that were shut down. Um, and 
that, that's a lot of tax revenue that is lost. And uh, I think there's a lot of people fleeing uh, major cities uh, for more suburban or, or even rural environments. And so it's like the only uh, option is either to cut spending dramatically, um, which people, politicians don't like to do, um, or borrow more money because they're not going to be able to raise taxes substantially to to pay for it. So it seems like it's or or, or knock on Uncle Sam's door and ask for, mm -hmm. and that's that's definitely the other option that's currently being pursued, both explicitly and behind closed doors. I think uh, very implicitly, strongly, the, the the demands for the bailout. Or, you know, what do you call the stimulus? Do you call it relief? Do you call it bailout? It depends on where you stand, but the um, the relationship between the federal government and many state and local governments is financially going to be very interesting to watch this year. Yeah, I just call it inflation. <laughs> That's my definition for stimulus. <laughs> it's um, um, what was the line? I guess I think it was Milton Friedman. Uh, inflation is everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon. It's not necessarily fiscal. The, the Federal Reserve. In its infinite wisdom, that will offset the inflationary if it does a good job of conducting monetary policy right. I mean, if it pursues stable prices, shouldn't it be able to offset the inflationary implications of government spending, ambitious government bailout plans? I mean, I don't really think so because I I, I think like we're we're walking on a tight tightrope. Um, and the wind is picking up and on one side is uh, um, deflation and the system breaking and on the other side is inflation and the system breaking. <laughs> and so like, I, I mean, from my understanding, I'm not an expert on the topic, but from my understanding, like the, the tool that they have are, are to let um, uh, interest rates rise and you know, we know what happens when they do that is that, like the markets become pretty unhappy. And, and, and like we were talking about earlier, the psychology uh, um, can change really quick and drive these massive movements that are really destructive. Um, well, so I think, you, talk, you know, what, what, which interest rates might you be referring to? We're, we're exploring some very difficult waters here. You know, if the Federal Reserve does sense that inflation is becoming a problem, and historically, we've learned, for instance, in the 70s, that they tend to do so after it's already become a problem. They don't necessarily act proactively. They react to previous mistakes. If they do that again and start raising short-term rates, what will happen to the long end of the yield curve? That's going to be an important question. Uh, can the Federal Reserve manage the long end as well as the short end? That's a matter of debate. Some people believe that it's gotten so much more active in general and at the long end in particular that long-term interest rates, and we can talk, given your concern about inflation statistics along these lines, the, <clears throat> the signal from tips may or may not be what it used to be if the Federal Reserve has um, more buying and selling of long-term instruments, including tips, treasury inflation protected securities in its monetary policy, it's possible we don't get um, as valid a read from market signals for from long-term interest rates than we that we got, we got previously. I'm losing my voice. I gotta grab some diet coke that's empty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no worries. 
All right, no sweat. We'll, we'll, we'll dig it out here. Yeah, it... Yeah, the market is... Uh, I don't know. It, it would be nice to have a crystal ball. Why, why would anybody want to buy bonds right now? I think Warren Buffett uh, raised some questions about that in his latest annual shareholder letter. Did you see the, that his remarks? The no. Bond investors are not looking at a good future, I think, was all along the lines. I haven't looked closely at the context within he within what he said that. But um, having said that, I kind of would have said the same thing four years ago. So I've been I've been wrong for four years. Maybe maybe we're in a new normal. That's that's very strange and different. Yeah, the the bond uh, bull market may be ending. <laughs> it's like I yeah I haven't watched a um, Berkshire Hathaway um, meeting for a few years um, because I've just gone down the Bitcoin rabbit hole so hard. <laughs> uh, it uh, it it is definitely a lot of fun to watch uh, Warren and Charlie Munger you know, talk about, uh, things. So maybe I should go back. And, um, I was, I was definitely more interested, uh, recently in the GameStop hearing, uh, okay. which was a complete debacle in of itself. Well, 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 speaking of Warren and Charlie, I have a story that relates to one of those topics I, I brought up for you. And that's the, the history of cash accounting. Mm-hmm. You, I think you might, enjoy, you might enjoy this story. Um, Back in the, the annual meeting for Berkshire Hathaway, in a previous life, I was actually covering them and uh, went to their annual meeting the year after the 2008-2009 um, implosion. And in, the, you know, in that big basketball court arena that they have Charlie and Warren sitting under one end of the basketball court and talking to like 10,000 people. And, well, that Berkshire Hathaway meeting is really fascinating. It's, it's a cultural phenomenon. But um, they expressed, uh, and Warren talked about how the government really had to do that, had to do the stabilization or bailout or whatever you call it, but they had to step to the plate and things were getting so bad, it was getting into the money markets and the commercial paper market was imploding. They had to stop it. They were run on money market mutual funds and and the, the, the government had to step to the plate. That was his argument. Well, the following day was the day that um, there's, a, there's a media session. I wasn't in the media, but I was invited to this meeting. And there were like 30 reporters and other people there in order to ask questions. And they just take these questions from anybody. And it's, it's cool to watch them react. They're, they're, they're amazing thinkers on the fly and very, very smart, interesting people. But in order to choose which person uh, asked the question, uh, you had to put your hand into a hat and pull out a number. And so I put my hand into the hat and pull out, I pull out number one. And I'm the first person to ask the question. So here I am 10 feet away from Warren and Charlie and my knees are shaking. And I, I didn't, I didn't blow it, Alex. I asked a really good question. Nice. And it, it relates to the accounting for cash. Going into the crisis, Berkshire Hathaway had roughly $40 billion in cash and cash equivalents at the top of its balance sheet for the different divisions. They had one of the most liquid and safe balance sheets on the planet, on the surface. But let's think about cash and cash equivalents very simply for a moment. 
What is, what is cash, Alex? It's a melting ice cube. <laughs> well, I think you're you're going in the direction I I might be going in. In in accounting, cash and cash equivalents. Okay, we've got cash equivalents, and we have cash. So what is cash? Cash in accounting is two main things. Cash on hand, this stuff, and cash in a bank, in a deposit, command deposits mainly specifically. Are those equal things? No. What happened in 1907 in the United States? The panic of 1907? People were saying, thanks, but I don't want your stuff. I want my stuff. Give it to me now. The biggest banking panic ever in United States history up until that point in time happened because people didn't think those two things were equal. Two, three years later, we got the solution. The Federal Reserve, the lender of last resort, in order to try to stabilize the system and make sure that those two things that weren't equal were equal. 20 years after that, what happened? The worst banking panic in US history. Despite the fact that we had the solution or maybe because of the fact that we had the solution. Why am I bringing this up now? Cash is not equal to itself, but we try to, we add deposit insurance in order to try to make these two unequal things equal. And I'm afraid the moral hazard and other issues associated with these government stabilization schemes actually destabilize the system in the long run. We learned that in the SNL crisis. We didn't learn our lesson then. We learned it again in 2008, 2009. And that's why I asked my question of, of, of Warren. Here's my question that I asked at that annual meeting. Going into the crisis, you know, you, you expressed uh, appreciation and, and uh, respect for the government's decision to stabilize the system. But going into the crisis, you had $40 billion in cash and cash equivalents on your balance sheet. Is it possible there were some moments in the crisis that were a little bit too exciting from your perspective? I mean, just think, think very simply, uh, this wasn't the case. And in fact, the way they answered this question, you'll, you'll, you'll find interesting, I think. But the, um, what if that $40 billion was in one account at Citibank? How much of that is insured? Not much. Not, yeah. <laughs> and so that 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 money was at risk. So I was effectively asking if Berkshire Hathaway was a, an indirect bailout recipient of the government's. You know, I didn't say that in my question, but Warren looked kind of mad at me and sort of not and, and then they hit it out of the park. They were they were in, they were focused. And this is what Charlie said. He said, at Berkshire Hathaway, there's a few things that are beautiful in their simplicity. And this is one of them. We take no risk in our cash position. A lot of people at the time were stretching for yield, trying to maximize whatever possible yield they could get out of their cash. But that's they were in short-term uh, government bond funds that were effective for maybe the safest thing you can possibly have. So they had cash and cash equivalents, and they really were cash-like. And that's why they were so stable. And, and in fact, Goldman Sachs had to buddy up to, to Warren during the crisis in order to try to get some investment along with the U.S. government, a longer story. But why, why, am I, what am I, why are we ranting and raving about this from, for, as you're interested in, in alternative currencies 
you know, to what extent we owe our financial system to successive attempts by our government to shore up a fundamentally unstable state of affairs. Um, a world without deposit insurance, without a central bank is another possible future that could be in our future. But the, the accounting for money, when you ask simple questions, what is cash? What is money? You look under the hood on simple questions. That's when you you learn about the <laughs> important political and public policy issues associated with trying to ensure that money is a stable thing. And it, maybe those attempts to stabilize things make things unstable. Yeah. Wow. You just uh, blew my mind again. I, that's something I wouldn't really think about. I, I think the FDIC insurance is like up to, what, what is it, like $150,000? I think it's two fifty today, but that's, I haven't worked in. But so they, if they you have, have all these all these magic mechanisms for helping people with big deposits break them up into lots of little bank deposits and, and it, it's all it all gets pretty interesting yeah that that makes even more sense to me now um why companies like tesla and um microstrategy and square and mass mutual um are putting bitcoin on their balance sheet right now um because it's something that you can self-custody. And this is what I tell people a lot of times is like, if it's in the bank, it's not really yours. Um, and there's a lot of trust involved. Um, well, that's now we're, now we got more history to learn from, I'm afraid. And that's the um, March, 1933 episode. Could people thought they could self-custody their gold until they couldn't. And yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, that that's an interesting discussion, and that, and that's definitely one that's had a lot in the Bitcoin space. Is um, uh, what if there's a potential confiscation? And I think like the difference between uh, Bitcoin and gold in that regard is like a lot of a lot of the gold was being held in bank vaults, you know, so it was very easy to custody or uh, very easy easy to confiscate. confiscate. <laughs> yeah, and so you know, for this is a big big thing in in the Bitcoin space is um the saying, not your keys, not your cheese, um, is like, you need to be self-custodying. If you leave it on exchange, one, it's uh, susceptible to hacking. It's not um, uh, insured um, generally. Um, and then two- there's a, there's a similar issue with gold, you know, back in the day, you know, people could quote self-custody. They, they had backyards and basements and they could try to do some of that too. But even then, the force of government, it, when it decides to do draconian things, is is hard to reckon with. If if they get serious and they start taking names and making it criminal for you not to turn in what you think is self custody, um, well, I hope we don't get to that day. But yeah, it's entirely in the realm of possibility because what a, a lot of people don't understand in the United States is what happens when a currency fails. Um, and capital controls come into play, you know, and they start mandating what you can, can and can't do with your money, limiting ATM withdrawals. Um, you know, if you try to get out of the fiat currency for another, like this has happened in just about every country, you know, Lebanon, Argentina, Egypt, every country that's experienced uh, massive inflation, um, they, they force everybody into the local currency. Um, 
and then they destroy it and and so your wealth just kind of evaporates um so that happened to a lot of people in 1933 34 it was it was a sad element of our history yeah but here's one of the nice things about bitcoin if if you do um get rounded up and thrown in prison for not uh um exchanging it or allowing the confiscation of it it'll probably be worth a lot more when you get out <laughs> <laughs> it's less expensive than that. I, I i say that jokingly but um it it is very difficult it to um it's very difficult to uh try and trace in the same way that um other things are like using fiat currency. So like they banned Bitcoin in Nigeria and yet Nigeria's adoption rates are higher than anywhere else in the world um, because people, and, and that's not like, you know, a great um, comparison comparatively to the U S government, but you can, you can transact and create circular economies of individuals that do not touch um, the exchanges where you have to give all your information over um and and lose the anonymity and privacy and um be able to survive and and, and transact and that, that's just what happens when um things go sour real fast as black markets um uh spring up because people need to survive like people need to eat and like when your choice is between starvation eviction or um operating illegally you know it, it's a pretty uh easy choice for for most people um and it, it's really interesting looking at how that uh works and um and and if anything like you know the cool thing about bitcoin too is you can flee so, so like say something like that happens you can just leave the country with all your wealth um in your pocket if you want to, or at least a large amount of it, which is very unique comparatively to gold. Like, you know, going through customs um, with your Bitcoin is night and day difference than, uh, mm. um, I mean, you can put it on your laptop, you can put it on your phone, you can put it on a thumb drive or um, a hardware wallet and uh, uh, versus like getting inspected by customs with, you know, your, your bars of gold that are easily confiscatable. Um, so it's uh definitely not like foolproof like i think like if something like that were to happen a lot of people would be hurt um but it is a little bit more um convenient i guess for self-protection in a situation like that so well it's it's interesting to consider you know in economics we tend to presume that we, we like you know freedom we like free markets we like outcomes with mutually advantageous willing trading participants and and yet maybe the most fundamental market of all is our money market and what have we done in the united states in our money markets we've we've given 12 people the power to control short-term interest rates and try to manage all of our money and credit um, have we given up on economics for the most important market why why what what's the maybe a, you know maybe the time has come today for a conversation that we're getting more and more of about the fundamental wisdom maybe it's time for a new era but that's i'm thinking out loud i'm not speaking for truth and accounting that's more of a 
Yeah, I I like to think that that money is like the base layer of society, and and it has influence over just about every interaction that we have, and it needs to be uh, one of the most important conversations that we're having. And it was something that uh, baffled me in all my economics classes. Monetary theory was not a very um, important subject um, comparatively to you know how do you manipulate uh prices with you know different tools <laughs> like that was more in my in my money and banking class i i stress to the students you know when if i sound cynical sometimes i at the end of the day you've got to respect what good money does for society when it, when it works well it's an amazing innovation if i have cows and you have pigs and i don't want pigs we can still do a deal and explodes the possibility of trade in, in a way that makes us all better off when it works well. And money itself and banks themselves aren't inherently bad things. They're, they're, they're doing wonderful things when, when, it, when the system works well. And yeah. How, how does it work is, and whether or not government should be as involved as it is. Yeah, I think that the idea of separating money and state is really, really interesting idea and i think it's a really good idea um, how do you you know can you do it completely do, do you need to have property rights defined and protected is there there has to be some role for government in creating standards uh, how where do you where do you draw the line on separating money in the state and stand, standards include accounting policies yeah yeah that's a, that's a really interesting topic and it's definitely been one that i've been been exploring like how, how can government have a um a positive relationship to bitcoin um and it it definitely is one that like we're we're so early on um in the stage of, and like you know a lot of people in the bitcoin space like myself believe that it's gonna be um the dominant currency of the future and that it's gonna radically definancialize uh society where and actually uh enable people to like instead of um putting all this money into risk assets in their 401k accounts they're going to be able to invest in themselves and hold equity in themselves um because they're going to be able to save um but yeah as far as like the, the role of government um over money i mean i mean i think there's like basic things that are really important that we protect and that government has a positive role in protecting, which is private property um, and individual rights to have a, have a court system to um, settle disputes. And, um, but as far as like manipulating prices, I don't, I don't know if that's uh, um, like subsidizing things and um, um, you know, coming up with things like minimum wages and, and, and stuff like that. It's, it, I don't know if that's always beneficial now. Um, I think it's a difficult conversation to have because we don't have a great definition of what government is, um, anymore, at least, you know, that you've got, um, it's, it, it seems like the general conversation today is like demanding growth of government more and more so to, to be able to, um, oversee just about every little thing, you know, it's like, you know, we're defining things like hate speech. Um, and our, our government has grown 
dramatically, both um, explicitly and implicitly, the ways in which government outsources governmental functions to private sector. The, the penumbra of government in the United States has gotten so large. It's pretty. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean th that's one thing. I. I I don't fit into the red versus blue battle um, because I think those are those paradigms are, are not very helpful and we're kind of moving in a direction where that isn't as relevant as it used to be. Um, and the typical uh, right wing um, response is that we need to privatize everything. But the way that that's been done is it just means that they're going to offset all the accountability um, by giving it to firms that are not um, transparent and open um, in the same way. Along, along these lines, we got to recommend a cool book, uh, Saving Capitalism from the Capitalists by Raghu Rajan and Luigi Zingales at the University of Chicago. Um, what their thesis is that, you know, capitalism inherently isn't necessarily bad, but what happens when capitalists end up controlling government and using government and government levers to make themselves better off, potentially at the worst off consumers and taxpayers. They, 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 in this book, they cite one of my all-time favorite economists, this guy, George Stigler, at the University of Chicago, S-T-I-G-L-E-R. Stigler was one of the founders of the idea of the capture theory of regulation that, um, you know, the University of Chicago has a reputation for being this quote-unquote pro-business, anti-government thing, but Stigler's thesis was really interesting along these lines that no, businesses don't necessarily dislike regulation. They like it because they control it and use it to their, their advantage at the expense of the average Joe and Jane and, and the taxpayer. And it's that that perspective that we have to defend against. And in, 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 in theory, our government is, is charged with promoting the general welfare. Well, what if it's being manipulated by special interest groups of any stripe, be they labor unions versus large corporate interests and, and it, it, our government has been gained to produce a system of captured advantage at the expense of the average general welfare, I'm afraid. Yeah, it's uh, it's really funny uh, to watch these hedge funds demand regulation um, in response to the whole GameStop debacle. Um, and I think that's a great, a great point of like, um, a, a lot of time, or like Amazon's the biggest uh, advocate of a $15 minimum wage, you know, because they're going to benefit disproportionately from it. And I think minimum wage is a lot more nuanced conversation than um, is often uh, presented uh, to mm -hmm. people. I think like where we're at right now, minimum wage discussion is just a response to inflation, you know, of like wages are not following the increased cost of living and people see that and they feel that and they're hurt by that. Um, and so it, that's why it's being presented and lauded as a solution. But um, it's, uh, I mean, I think like the best thing a company could ever do is uh, um offer to pay employees uh, at least partially in something like Bitcoin. Uh, well, you know who's thinking about that lately? Have you heard the stories? I think it's the city of Miami. Yep. Who's who's talking about uh, contracting in Bitcoin, including with its own employees. Mm -hmm. That's pr that's pretty amazing. Yeah. I have, a, I have a question for you regarding we're getting kind of close to the end here and learn sure. in light of your interest on the monetary side. You know, in this future 
possible world that you're talking about in 20, 30 years in, from an accounting standpoint. You know, we have accounting stand, you know, statements like the balance sheet, the income statement, the long list of items, complicated, um, lots of words on the left-hand side. On the right-hand side, we have lots of numbers, but those numbers all have one thing in common. They're all denominated in dollars. The dollar is the unit of account. Well, what is a dollar? What will a dollar be in 20 years? Is it possible these statements are denominated in something else? Or, you know, are we still going to have a legal, in the words of Edwin Vieira, he, he said that the, the dollar in our, in our government's hands has changed from a specific amount of silver coin which it was back in the Founders' Day, to a political abstraction. That's what he defined a, a dollar as, something that's malleable, that the government can change in, 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 its, in its ability to pursue other goals. And, and so we can't trust a dollar, even though we do. <laughs> um, and, and compared to the 70s, we're in, we're in better shape, I think, than we were back then from an inflation standpoint. But I, I hope I'm... I hope I'm not wrong. Yeah. Um, I don't, it, it really is interesting to look at the future um, because where Bitcoin stands, it's only 12 years old. Um, and, you know, if we were to completely on ramp right now, I think it would be pretty difficult. Like it, the network could handle it, um, but the fees would go up through the roof and it would be very difficult to um, uh, really, uh, um, you know, transact and, and effectively uh, transfer money. Um, so, you know, where we're at as far, far of like, as far as from a scaling solution, we have something called the Lightning Network. And that is um, essentially like you create payment channels. Um, it's, a, it's a second layer built on top of the first settlement layer of Bitcoin. So like when I try and describe this to people, I like to say like cash, is the base um, settlement layer of the dollar monetary system, and um, you know, digital banking is like the second layer solution uh, to help it scale and for transactions to happen quicker. And so that's kind of what the Lightning Network is. But we're it's only a couple of years old, um, uh -huh. so it's uh, you know kind of rough around the edges. I play around with it quite a bit, and I'm super excited about it because it's a lot nicer to get um, a uh, transaction or pay a transaction fee that only is like a couple fractions of a cent than it is to be at like a few dollars because the fees are pretty high right now because of the price increase. So I, I, I'm explaining that because I think it's like, you know, we're, we're sitting in an era in regards to Bitcoin, we're sitting in a similar place to like the early development of the internet of like, we had no idea the ways that it would disrupt um, technology and disrupt our lives today and become, you know, like I sit on the internet probably like 10 to 12 hours a day doing various things. Um, you know, we were doing conversations like this via zoom. Um, my, my school is on zoom. Um, my entire school is on the internet. Um, and, you know, we're even, I would argue, in the early stages of the internet because of the developments that are coming around the um, bend with like virtual reality, um, 
and all or so, sorts of crazy things. Like I have a friend speaking that of, speaking of crazy, have you have you heard of the, the Kurzweil? You've seen seen the prediction that we might be walking around with chips in our heads and in 20 years we might yeah, be I, connected. <laughs> I I think that's like entirely in the realm of the possibilities because of um I mean that's essentially what our smartphones are is like it, it's an extension of ourselves um and of our consciousness and uh um people people are very fearful of something like that um but i don't see how it's entirely different because you know if they're worried about tracking and identification it's like well you know if you have a smartphone you're you're being tracked, you're being tracked everywhere and they can listen to what you're saying and, you know it's and even see what you're seeing like i mean hacking webcams is something the nsa has been known to do for a very long time but um so yeah i mean looking into the future it it would make sense to to be able to account things in, in Bitcoin um, because it is a superior money. It is, uh, you know, sound money that the, its monetary policy is not manipulated, manipulatable in the same way. I mean, it's uh, it's really superior. It's it's more portable, more divisible, um, more um, easily transported than you know any other currency, and you can settle it. Um, in a peer-to-peer -peer manner, which is the first digital uh, currency of its type or ever to do something like that. So, I mean, I, mean, I think well, like... Along, along those lines, we've had kind of the infancy of accounting standard setters efforts to deal with cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin specifically in, in the last decade, but maybe that that's just the beginning. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be important to watch how the accounting people at the end of the day, you know, money, what is it? It's got three elements. You know, we've talked about that in economics, a medium of exchange, a store of value. And I, I think the most fascinating is this money is a unit of accounts. That's like the most, mm -hmm. in my head, it's like the thing <laughs> that makes money. Uh, and, and uh, you know, what, what will money be in the future in terms of a unit of account in 20, 30 years? It's, it's going to be amazing to watch. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty uh, mind blowing to think of where we could be just looking at the past thirty years and how things have shifted. Like, I, the world that I was born into is it compared to the world today, it's very different for sure. Um, yeah. Do you have any? Uh, how have just like one final question? Um, how have your opinions on Bitcoin uh, changed over the past year? I don't think they've changed a lot. I um, I respected it as an alternative a year ago. I'm still um, leery of the future in light of what government can or can't do to it. I'm afraid at the end of the day, the, the people with the tanks determine what money is. And and it's that's a hard thing to, to overcome for if, if the government decides the market isn't going to be allowed to come to fruition. The government has a, an important role to play in making that future a reality. So I'm I'm still um, concerned that it's the, the threat that it poses is one that the government won't sit idly by. And and if that's the case, it may take longer to get to this future if it's a good future. Um, but I know it's going to be fun to watch, and I, I like competition, and I, I respect freedom and what what people are trying to do with Bitcoin. So I'm, in a sense, I think I'm rooting for it still. 
Yeah. I think one of the the biggest things that uh, Bitcoin has going for it is um, there's a lot of people in government that are Bitcoiners and that will increase, especially as the price continues to go up and people are forced into the uh, into owning it as a uh, inflation hedge slash uh, just basic assurance policy. And I think like that. The fact that, the fact that places like the city of Miami are beginning to work mm-hmm. with it. I mean, there's one way you can think about this negatively in the sense that, you know, all the cities, they're, they're gambling in some place they shouldn't be. On the other hand, one thing that we've learned from history, and I'm going way back, not just 1776, but, you know, what, things that are money, they become money because governments start accepting them mm-hmm. as payment of taxes or in, in contracting services. And moneyness is determined by the willingness of government to work with it. So if if places like Miami and other jurisdictions are actually doing that now, um, well, anyway, that's that's maybe the beginning of the of the growth curve. We'll see. The dominoes are falling. Um, yeah. Uh, so where where can people follow your work? Um, at uh, we're at www.truthinaccounting.org. Uh, that's our fundamental website with uh, entree to all the different services that we provide. We also do, a, I do a daily newsletter covering government financial news on a daily basis called The Morning Call. As soon as you go to our website, you'll find a way to be invited to be on our daily newsletter. We've got about you know 800 to 1,100 people a day um, reading that newsletter, it's, and it's been uh, a good growth vehicle for us and a way to build communication and relationships with folks. We also have a website called dataz.org, data-z, where we have uh, about 700 different time series for economic, demographic, and government financial characteristics that I was just using this morning to compare the financial condition of states and cities to the home prices in the area, where you can see a pretty direct relationship. The recovery since the crash in 08, 09 is directly related to the government's financial condition. It's that kind of analysis you can do with that that data Z website that you can create your own charts and stuff like that. That's where people can get to know us. That's awesome. Yeah. And I know you guys are doing some YouTube stuff too, which I was watching before um, active on Twitter. I'll, I'll post out all the links in the description of the video. Great. Well, yeah, I really appreciate you coming on bill. This is a lot of fun. Yeah. It's great to talk to you. I, I, I like thinking about this stuff and, kind of fundamental but sometimes radical ways i think it's good to think out of the box like this yeah that's how to that's how to be creative and maybe grow yeah i don't really know how to classify my conversations with bill if i should say that they're scary or fun um either way i enjoy them um but yeah truth and accounting is a really important organization that unfortunately doesn't get as much attention as they deserve i think part of it is because the establishment loves to um, prop themselves up with information and bad data that allows them to continue with the status quo and we all know that we're getting screwed over you know in various ways and uh, they do a really good job of explaining uh, to at least some degree how we are getting screwed over you know go check out their pension database and see how unfunded your pension is if you're living in Arizona it's looking pretty scary you know and so, some places are worse off than others, but, you know, in reality, we need to hold our elected officials accountable. You know, if they're going to take our money, then they better be doing something good with it. Um, 
and uh, you know they're not right now. Um, but yeah, it, it's looking pretty scary where we're heading. Uh, I think inflation is an inevitability, and, and it's a pretty safe assumption. If you print trillions of dollars in a short amount of time and expand the money supply by somewhere like 25% in a year, it is gonna end in rising prices and uh, essentially just the devaluation of your purchasing power. You know, the money that you receive in your paycheck isn't going to be worth as much. And that's why tools like Bitcoin are so important right now. Um, but yeah, if you want to learn more about Bitcoin, there's some great meetup groups in Tucson um, and Phoenix that you can check out. Check out the Arizona Bitcoin Network on meetup.com and check out the Tucson Bitcoin Meetup. Um, we're doing a lot of great stuff with those different groups. Uh, you know, you can come and learn, ask questions, um, doing presentations on different topics, on uh, different tools that you can use. And uh, if you want something specifically covered, you can ask and uh, hopefully um, we'll be able to answer those questions. But yeah, um, also feel free to reach out to me on Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, um, and uh, I guess I'm on Facebook too. I hate Facebook, but I'll answer your messages if you message me there uh, at Tucson Bitcoin. Uh, but yeah, hope you have a good one. Thanks for watching or listening.